Hi, this is Patty Lapone. This is Allison Janney. This is Matt Balmer. This is Donna Murphy. This is Nia Vardalis. This is Jesse Tyler Ferguson. This is Beanie Feldstein. I'm Octavia Spencer. This is Ben Platt, and you're listening to Little Known Facts with my favorite person on the planet, Alana Levine. A-OK. Welcome to Little Known Facts, a podcast where you will hear unfiltered, raw, honest, and uniquely funny interviews with artists you love as they talk about the art they love to make. I'm your host, Ilana Levine. Hey, I heard you needed inspiration. He's Ilana and friends with some revelations. Little known back to the day, every little thing's gonna be A-OK. known fact about my guest today. She knows she is ready to sit down and write her next novel when she hears the first sentence of the book in her head. Welcome New York Times bestselling author Jody Pico to the podcast. A-OK. A-OK. Hey everyone, my guest today is Jody Pico. Jody Pico is a number one best-selling author of 28 novels. She was first published in 1992, and her most recent title, Wish You Were Here, was published in 2021. Her YA novel, Between the Lines, co-written with her daughter, Samantha Van Leer, has been adapted into an off-Broadway show premiering in the summer of 2022. Jody has had 10 books that debuted at number one on the New York Times bestseller list, and many of her books have been adapted for both the large and small screen. Welcome truly to the most prolific writer on the planet Earth. What a thrill to have you on the show today. It's so nice to be here. Thank you for inviting me. You are so welcome. Um, listeners, Jody and I were talking pre-record. Uh, she was in a power outage this morning, and miraculously, the podcast gods made it. That power came right back on. Um, by the way, this is we're recording in 2022. This podcast will live forever. So when I say 28 novels, that will not be true. For many <laughs> listeners who find this podcast in the future, it will be 100. Um, I want to go back in time to Jody finding a pen and realizing that there was something in her head that could come out in this art form. Like, how did this begin? You know, if you ask my mom that, she'll tell you that the first thing I wrote was when I was five years old, it was a book called The Lobster That Was Misunderstood, and I illustrated it too. She actually still has it. I made her show it to me about like two or three years ago. And I think that I believe personally that you are born a storyteller, but you can become a better writer. You can be trained into becoming a better writer. So I think that that need to sort of organize and understand the world around me is something that I've, I, I honestly can't remember not having. Mm-hmm. Um, what's surprising to me is that I make a living in it. Because when I was growing up, you know, I didn't know anyone who was a writer. You know, it's one of those weird jobs. Like, I don't know anyone who's on Broadway. I don't know anyone who does, you know, film for a living. So it was it was really um, aspirational for me to think about a career in writing. But I had a lot of teachers who really encouraged me to do what I love to do. 
and um, made sure that when I was applying to colleges, I was looking at places that had undergraduate creative writing programs. Because when I went to school in the 80s, there were a lot of grad school programs, but not too many at the undergrad level. And I was really fortunate to get into Princeton and to work with a living, breathing author who was, you know, basically making a living doing this, um, Mary Morris. And if not for her, I wouldn't be here today. She challenged me into becoming a better writer and into believing that I could be a writer. So you have sort of known since the age of five, it was discovered by your mother, this intuitive talent for storytelling in this way, encouraged yeah. at home. Where was home? Where did you grow up? I grew up on Long Island, Long Island. Okay. okay. <laughs> yeah, uh, on the North Shore, about uh, halfway out um, near, uh, it was a small town called Nesconset, um, very near where the ferry came in, uh, in Port Jeff. And um, my dad worked on Wall Street. My mom ran a nursery school. And I come from a long line of teachers, and I have given birth to a long line of teachers. And um, and basically, yeah, I you know, I had a very happy, normal, suburban childhood. You know, my parents are still very happily married. I have one little brother, and I like him. Like, I didn't seem to have all the trauma that I thought I needed to be a writer. To be a good artist, right. Right. And, and I think that really kind of informed the I, I began to create my career because, you know, when, when you go to, to uh, creative writing classes, the first thing you're told is write what you know. I knew nothing and you know, <laughs> I just didn't seem to have the angst necessary to be a tortured artist. So I decided to write what I was willing to learn. And to this day, most of the writing that I do is geared around research and and questions to which I don't know the answers that I hope to learn in the course of writing a novel. So even pre-college, all through your elementary, middle, and high school career, were you always writing? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was. Um, you know, I was, uh, I think my mom actually found the old, like, journals and poems that I wrote when I was, you know, 15 or 16. And honestly, reading them, you would have thought I was a very troubled individual. And I was, I wasn't, I think it all just came out in my writing. Um, But, you know, I I think, thank goodness, I've, I've gotten better than I was back then. But I, uh, you know, I think it was very typical, you know, pouring out your, your teenage emotions about the, the, your relationships and your friends and, and all of that was channeled really into poetry. I wrote poetry when I was a teenager. And in fact, when I went to college, I started the creative writing program as a poet, which um, is a really interesting thing to reflect back on at this point in my career. I do think it makes for a different kind of novelist. Uh, I can describe in five words what it will take someone else to describe in a paragraph. And I know that is a direct uh, reflection of training that I had as a poet before I became a fiction writer. Um, you know, I watched many interviews that you've done in the past just to to kind of hear you in your own words about what you love to do and how you do it. And you've mentioned a few times sort of this idea of like, if a question keeps you up at night or remains interesting for a period of time, or voices, characters, ideas pop up like mushrooms in your head. Um, I want to get deeper into that. If you could, for a moment, imagine that the book you are 
currently writing, um, just as an exercise, is How I Write by Jodi Pico. Yeah, I mean, for me, a book always does start with the germ of an idea. And I think it's quite interesting that people assume I'm either psychic or I'm flipping through the newspapers to find the most, you know, hot topic. It's actually best selling topic. Yeah, it is the absolute reverse of that. Um, It's something literally, like I say all the time, that does keep me up at night. It's something I worry about or I don't understand or I'm upset about or I'm nervous about or, you know, um, it's really, you know, all my anxieties come out, I guess, in my fiction. And it's funny because if you do look at the trajectory, trajectory of my career, you can see what worried me when. You know, um, at the beginning, I was writing about the relationships between a young woman and her parents, because that's where I was in life. And then I started, I got married and I started to write about what it means to be in a committed relationship and whether it's ever really 50-50 and what that means. Mm -hmm. Then I had kids. And for many years, all of my books were about all the scary things that can happen to your kids. (laughs) Yeah. Then my kids survived childhood. Yay. And I started to move into what I consider bigger concept questions, the nature of good and evil, um, uh, the idea of, um, gosh, I'm trying to think of some of the other ones that I've, I've covered recently, things like women's rights and, and abortion healthcare, um, you know, things like racism, things that were, there are much larger topics that I could never dismantle in one novel, but that allowed me to poke that stick a little bit. Right. Uh, I always joke around and say, clearly, you know, I'm going to start writing about putting your parents into a retirement community, which I'm sure my mother is thrilled with, but you know. I mean, it's just, um, it's kind of where my head is at the time. And so for me, it starts with that idea. And the, the only word that comes to mind when I think about process is percolating. There's a lot of work that gets done when I'm not sitting at my computer. It gets done when I'm swimming laps. It gets done when I'm driving in the car. It gets done when I'm hiking. It's, it's letting my brain play, I think. And, um, I, it does not feel particularly as if I'm directing that traffic, I feel more like I'm just letting everything settle. What if, well, what if this, am I, who, you know, who's talking? And, and it, it really does feel a little bit like, like being Zeus and having Athena spring out of your head. Characters just come. And the hardest thing I, the one thing I cannot describe to you is voice because my characters arrive with voices and with problems and with flaws. And I do not feel as though I create them. I feel like they land in my head. Mm -hmm. Um, I always joke around and say that writing is successful schizophrenia because I get paid to hear those voices. But, But that's really what it is. It's sharing your mind with other people's thoughts and impressions and their, their voices. And um, those voices begin to take that question, that issue away from me and to walk through um, a situation that forces me to play out how they would react. That is the creation of a novel, really. And there's a point where I stop and I go, okay, 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 what do I need to know? And I'm the kind of person who likes to do all the research up front as much as I can. So I would say a good 85 to 90% of the research that I do for a book is done before I write a single word of the book. And it's usually by shadowing people that I have networked to find, um, by diving deeply into uh, source material and uh, texts that exist. I mean, you can't, you, you're seeing a poster behind me, but you, what you can see is what's happening to my left, which are stacks and stacks of books um, okay. you know, that I'm reading now in preparation for something I'll be writing. And so uh, all of those things 
begin to circulate in my head as I do uh, interviews with people or shadow them, as I read all this material, um, it feels a little bit like a tornado. I know I'm not supposed to be using metaphors, but that's what it's like. It's like all these images and thoughts and facts just floating around up there. And I know I'm ready to write when I hear that first line in my head. And it it just feels like funneling, a, a tornado funneling down to a point and hitting ground. And it, it's funny because it happened to me the other day. I never know when it's going to happen. I am still in the middle of doing research. So I am not ready to write a book that will be coming out in 2024, but I knew what the first line was. And I woke up and I was like, okay. And I just sat down and it was, I didn't even have my computer nearby. So I was typing it into the notes app on my phone, which is really a pain in the neck, you know, but I have it. And when I'm ready now, when I got all the research, I know how to sit down and start writing this book. So to that end, technology has changed sort of how so many people do their jobs compared to where they started, right? So when you even just starting now and working backwards, um, when you pick up your phone, do you on those hikes when you're not swimming, um, do you do you voice memo yourself? Do you yeah. do you verbally note? I do. And and to talk about the change in technology, I used to write on my arms. Um, like I'd be driving and I would have an idea and I would like write something with a, a pen or a Sharpie on my arm. And then I would sometimes would write on my children's arms because they were the other thing I never lost. Right. You know, and then I would come home and I would look at the kids and I'm like, Oh, right. I have to go write that on a note and just sit in my office. And now of course you don't have to do that because you have right. a voice app or you have a notes app. Exactly. So, yeah. Cocktail it's- napkins, children's <laughs> arms, whatever is in front of you. Um, so so to go back to your first novel, um, mm-hmm. was that something you started writing while you were still in school? My first novel was never published. Okay. My first novel was actually my creative thesis. And um, it was what I would call a necessary evil. I mean, there you should probably all be grateful it wasn't published because I, you know, obviously it was a learning experience for me, but it was a really important one because I got to write a novel with someone holding my hand who had done it before. And that was Mm -hmm. Mary Morris, who I talked about. And, um, you know, there is a big difference between writing short fiction, which is what you're trained to do in a creative writing program, and writing a novel, which you are not trained to do in a creative writing program. And it's the difference between juggling oranges and juggling elephants. And so having someone who could help me through that process was invaluable. And, you know, obviously with my thesis, so I also needed to graduate, but (laughs) it lives somewhere in Firestone Library at Princeton, if anyone really wants to get creative and read it. But I did use that, um, that piece, that, that thesis to get an agent. Uh, I had over 100 rejections from agents. People are usually really surprised to hear that. Um, And finally, a woman who was just starting her own agency read my thesis and said, I think I can represent you. I've never represented anyone before, but I think I can. And I said, great. And instead of selling my thesis, I gave her what I'd been writing because, you know, even when you're not published, you still write. Mm -hmm. And it was Songs of the Humpback Whale. And she sold that in about three months. And she is still almost 30 years out, still my agent. So, what is, you know, are there rituals? Do you have talisman on your desk and you're like, oh my God, how will I write today? Because I can't find my, or I'm away from home. And so it feels 
like I don't have the stone, you know, frog that I got on my trip to like things like that. So the way actors often have to have things in their dressing room and are superstitious about things. Do you, can you describe your writing ritual or is it not that? Yeah. Um, carving stone for you. Yeah. I, um, I can write anywhere. I have anywhere because I started writing professionally when I had babies you know, I was, I was taking care of three children under the age of four, and I was writing a book a year. Um, and uh, the way that occurred was basically all due to my husband who would come home from work at around six, and I would throw the children at him. And I would go hide in a room in our house, and I would write for five hours every night. You know, when you don't have time, you make time. Right. Um, so I learned to write whenever you know, Barney was on TV, or I would bring my laptop to swim practice, or I would bring it to nursery school pickup, and I would balance it on the steering wheel. And I would be typing in the 15 minutes I had. Um, I have written on airplanes, I have written in different countries, I write any anywhere I need to. I prefer to write right where you're sitting, seeing me right now, because everything is at my fingertips. And by everything, I don't mean a talisman frog. I mean, all of my research. (laughs) Um, I organize my research very carefully so that I know when I need it in the course of the novel, I can grab it. Right. And, and, you know, take my notes from it. So, um, you know, it's more messy to uh, have to do it on the road, but I absolutely have in the past. Um, And in terms of like, uh, you know, needing superstitions or, or things. No. Yeah. I don't. And honestly, I credit that to the fact that I was a working mom and I was also a full-time novelist and they dovetailed. And, you know, I think I feel this way about writer's block too. And you've probably heard me say this in interviews. I don't buy it. I don't believe it. Uh, writer's block is for people who have a surfeit of time. And if you think about being back in college when you had writer's block and you couldn't write your paper, isn't it just crazy how that all vanished the night before the paper was due? Yeah. You know, suddenly when you're down to the wire, you write. And um, when you don't have time, you use what you have quite wisely. So now I have all the time in the world. Now my kids are out of the house, they're grown up, uh, you know, but I still seem to function the way I did back then, which was um, when they were in organized school and still pretty young. I had eight hours a day to sit down and write and it was a work day. And, you know, there were times that I didn't really want to write. There were times I wanted to be shopping for shoes on the internet, but you know, when you sit down in the chair, it's time to write. And, um, and there are some days you do a better job than others, but it's, it's a job. It happens to be a job I love, but it's still a job. Most people, even the most successful people in your profession do not write a book a year. Yes. That is highly unusual unless it is a series of some kind and it is, you know, you're writing Spencer for hire. And so you have to have, you know, there, there's a number of books you've guaranteed. Um, did, did you, how did this happen? <laughs> uh, it was a contract. I didn't have a choice. <laughs> you know, I was told you're going to write a book a year. And, and there's really- that normal in your world to sign a contract like that. I, I don't know a lot about it. So tell uh, me. Uh, it depends. There, I, uh, The truth is people write at different speeds and there's mm-hmm. no right or wrong. It's, you know, when people always say, oh, I want to be a writer. I want to know what books should I read about writing? And there are some great books out there, you know, um, Annie Lamott and Stephen King's books are terrific. But what you really need to learn is what works for you, not what right. works for Annie or Stephen. And 
so you know that's a that's a process and i happen to be able to write quickly i know other people who can write quickly and i know other writers who i really admire who spend 10 years writing a book um there was always, you know, you talk about superstition. And I guess for me, there was always a sense that you strike when the iron is hot. And if I was gaining readers and, um, you know, just making, carving a path for myself in the industry, I didn't want people to forget who I was. Mm -hmm. So that, that I'm sure drove me. I also tend to be, um, I tend to be really driven. I mean, I, I, I don't procrastinate. I just don't. And so, uh, I, I'm the person who has zero unread mail in her mailbox because it drives me nuts to see people who have like 10,000 unread right. emails. Actually, right. I have to when I see it. So I have to be doing something. And, you know, for me, writing, writing came easily enough that I could produce a book a year. Now that said, it was, it was exhausting and, you know, add to that a book tour every year. Um, it doesn't leave you a lot of room. And when I, I think it was about, almost 13 years into my career when I switched over to um, Ballantyne, a random house, which is where I'm at now, they said, would you like to write a book every two years? And I was like, yes, yes, I would like to write a book every two years. And <laughs> and then my husband's like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. We're going to go on vacations. We're going to have so much time together. And that was when I started writing librettos with Tim McDonald. And so that's all gone away. And now I just have more more work than I you know, have time. Did you have parental guilt? Did mm. you feel like uh, your kids let you know in some way at times that they felt that they were competing with right. whatever you were working on? How, how did you, can you talk right. about parenting and having yeah. such a passion yeah. for what you do? I do also always preface this question with, ask this of the men on this program too. Every man who is making a living is someone who's picking up slack behind them. I have an amazing partner. My husband is the most supportive, kind, gentle individual I've ever met. And I am so lucky that he believed enough in me to have this come to Jesus moment where we were like, all right, well, if I'm going to, if my career is going to take off, something's got to give. And he was the something that gave. And he chose to stay home with the kids at a certain point so that I could do multi-international book tours and be gone for months at a time. Um, I don't think, it, you know, if we hadn't had that conversation, if it hadn't had that outcome, I wouldn't be where I am right now. My career is not my career. It's really our career. And, uh, you know, in terms of parenting, one of the beauties of being a writer or being a creative is that you can set your schedule. So I am happy to report that, like, for example, I never missed a, a production of any high school play that my son was in. Now, I flew 32 hours to get to one and I slept through it, but I was there. <laughs> you know, like, that's a little known fact. Yeah. <laughs> That's the kind of stuff that, that you do, I think, when you want to show up for your kids. I do think that there were definitely times that I felt like I missed something. I don't think, there, no woman has it all. Every woman I know is constantly juggling and trying to make it look like they've got their act together when they don't. Um, you know, it's like, it's the duck under the surface. The feet are paddling crazy, even though you look totally serene to everyone yes, else. Yes. Um, that is totally what it means, I think, to be a working mom. Um, but that said, the things that your children will learn from you are just as valuable if you're working as if you are home, you know, with them 
and devoting 100% of your energy to them. I know that my kids have learned a work ethic for me. I know that they all believe, you know, this career may be kind of crazy, but I'm going for it because it could happen. Um, in my daughter's case, she is now trying her hand at writing full time, which couldn't make me more proud, you know? And so for all of those reasons, uh, I think whatever guilt that I have is something that I think I try to remind myself um, created other opportunities for my kids to learn something from me. Absolutely. And an opportunity to actually collaborate with you, which yeah. must have been, uh, which brings us to uh, Between the Lines, which, um, you know, you mentioned starting to write a libretto, um, yeah. which has turned into what may end up being many of this, you know, sort of project. Um when you, you said you grew up in Long Island, which meant that you had, and your dad worked in the city, which meant that you had proximity via train or car to New York City. Was Absolutely. Broadway and Broadway musicals part of your family's fun? So much. Okay, um, so talk fact, about that. Yeah, my grandmother, who has since passed, but <clears throat> I was very close to, would take me every year to see a show on my birthday. That was our special thing. And... Um, you know, well, I remember seeing Patti LuPone as Evita with her. I mean, wow, right? And <clears throat> just being in awe of actors who could um, transform like that on a stage. Uh, when I was in middle school, um, I was, I did theater myself. I was Eliza Doolittle. You're hearing it right here. Uh, if you get me drunk enough, I can still sing in a Cockney accent. And Oh, um, I will. Oh, I will. Don't you worry. Yeah. Little known fact. I might even ask you to do it at the end of this without a cocktail, but go on. You have a nice cup of tea there. You're all warmed up. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I mean, I loved shows. I loved musicals. They were a part of my life. And when I became an adult um, and I moved to New Hampshire, my kids were- Wait, why did you move to New Hampshire? Oh, I moved to New Hampshire because, well, we kept moving north until we could afford- property basically when we were young and we finally settled on where we live we live in Hanover because um there was an Ivy League school there Dartmouth that provided a lot of culture and you know again speaking of shows and things that come to to us that we get to see right um it had a great medical center and a really good school system so it hit like all the boxes Got and so my husband tried to find a job up here and he did and I all I needed was an outlet so you know, I could work anywhere so that was why we moved to New Hampshire but or a sharpie my, you didn't even need an outlet you just needed some skin yeah, and a sharpie <laughs> so my kids all were interested in theater and at the time when they were younger there was no theater um before high school here for kids and so I started a theater troupe with a friend of mine, uh, and a couple of years into it, we collaborated with a, a woman who became my best friend, basically. And um, we wrote original musicals, full-length, family-friendly musicals for kids to perform. And this group got bigger and bigger and bigger to the point where my kids obviously heard way gone and I'm not directing the shows anymore I'm just producing them but I am really proud of the fact that I was part of the this upper valley youth theater 
um, creation. And now there are multiple avenues for kids to perform, which I, I can't even tell you how delighted that makes me. There's yeah. so many transferable skills in theater for kids. And so um, I still do it because I love it. Not because I have any time, but because I really love it, you know? And uh, and it was great to to collaborate with my best friend on these shows as well. But when it came to Between the Lines, it was different. I didn't want it to be a community theater show. It felt bigger to me. And and Sammy, my daughter, who wrote the novel with me, you know, I still remember. She was in my theater troupe. She actually has a terrific voice and is comedically gifted. And I remember telling her, I don't think this is done. This book was written and it was published. And it was on the bestseller list for weeks, but there's more to it. It sings. And I really, really wanted to see if if I could find a wider audience. But that meant moving beyond my own skills. And so um, through a very weird circumstance with Between the Lines, uh, I had been introduced to Daryl Roth's husband at Dartmouth. And um, I was being given an honorary doctorate. And he said to me, my wife is such a big fan of your work. And I said, oh, I'd love to meet her. Is she here? And he said, no, she's at the Tonys. And I went, what? And, um, you know, and I wound up connecting with Daryl and Daryl is a force of nature and uh, a gift to the Broadway community. And she basically offered to mentor me as I tried to, to suss out whether I could turn this project into a Broadway bound show. And um, I never expected her to want to produce it. That still was, was I, I literally fell off my chair in her office when she said that. And <clears throat> I was the one who found our songwriters. Um, Samsel Anderson is our songwriting team. And I think one of the things I'm most excited about for Between the Lines is being their theatrical debut because they are two women. Uh, when it comes to songwriting teams on Broadway, um, you can count on, I think, two fingers, the number of two woman songwriting teams. I've worked with both of them. And, um, and they, on the strength of the music that they wrote for Between the Lines, wound up getting hired by Disney and then uh, writing, being the songwriters for Central Park on Apple TV. They are just incredibly gifted. Um, and although I had written librettos before, this was like a, a different level. And so I knew that I couldn't, I didn't want to do it on my own. And Daryl was the one who connected us with Tim McDonald, who became our book writer for Between the Lines. And Tim, Tim was amazing because he'd only worked with dead authors in the past. So he was really excited to have two living authors to work with. And there were a lot of changes that needed to be made to the story because Between the Lines was um, a duology. And so, you know, you don't get sequels, musical sequels. So we had to figure out a way to navigate all that. And Tim was incredibly generous and open into letting me work with him, get my hands dirty, be part of all of the writing of it, um, you know, almost like this silent partner uh, in, in the libretto writing to the point where I, I fell in love with that level of collaboration. And I'm sure Daryl did not know it at the time when she introduced us, but we both describe that as finding the other half of our brain. It's like the brother that I never met. We can think for each other. We can write for each other. And collaborating with him is so much, so, so, so much fun um, to the point where we have now become a, a libretto team. And, you know, in addition to Between the Lines, we have um, an adaptation of the book Thief opening up in the UK in September. 
Uh, we're working on a third project together. We did a, a musical um, during the pandemic that was streamed. Um, and I love it. I just, I'm addicted to it. To me, it's, it is like a drug to be able to have different brains in the room that you can bounce ideas off of and write with. It feels like the best relay ever. So, you know, to answer your earlier question, it is entirely different from writing a novel. And it is like, it's a weird difference because it's like as if you were a marathon runner and then suddenly said, I am now going to become a swimmer and swim 10 miles a day. You're still exercising, but you're using very different muscles. And I think that doing work as a librettist has helped me as a novelist and vice versa. Talk about working with your daughter yes. and how yeah. did that first idea to collaborate in earnest yeah. come, it was come great together? Idea. She was 13. I was on a book tour. I remember exactly where I was. I was stuck in traffic on a, in a highway in LA. And she called me up and she said, I think I have a really good idea for a novel. And I said, all right, hit me up. And she said, well, what if um, that every time you closed a book, the characters inside it had lives and personalities completely different from the roles that they play when the book is open? And what if there was like this awkward girl who had a really crappy home life and used fiction to escape, like so many people do, you know, and um, was obsessed with this kid's book that had an illustrated prince in it because he was really hot. And one day he started talking to her and she realized he wanted out of his story as much as she wanted out of hers. And I just was like, wow. And I said to her, you know, we're going to write this together. Because who doesn't have a literary crush? Who isn't still waiting for Mr. Darcy to come sweeping in, right? Totally. You know, we've all been there. And I just thought this was going to be an incredible story. And the thing I wasn't willing to do was to write it for her and let her put her name on it. So Sammy had a job. She was a full-time student, which meant that we could only write during the summers. And so that first summer, we kind of plotted it out. And the second summer, when she was 15, I believe, I think it was, when, no, it was probably 14 and 15, somewhere in there. She came up to my office. We had two um, swivel chairs. We would take turns typing. I was always faster, so I always wound up doing this typing. And we literally spoke every word of that story out loud. And we went back and forth just creating this text together. And um, it was frustrating, fabulous, magical, um, you know, I, like when I work with Tim McDonald, I can't tell him to go to his room, even if I want to, you know, and so it would be weird. You could, but it would be weird. Right. <laughs> you know what? You could probably say, yeah, all right, whatever. Yeah. I need a timeout. Yeah. But, um, you know, with Sammy, there was still that mother daughter dynamic, but it was also watching her come into her own as a creator. Uh, the one thing that I remember when I, we were working on this together we went on book tours. So we were doing a lot of interviews and there were times that they didn't want us to be interviewed together, which was fine. But I got to listen in to her answers and she described what it feels like to write with the, almost the exact same metaphors. And, uh, you know, uh, the description was so it, it almost felt genetic. That's the best way right. that I can. Right. I'm like, sure it is. Yeah. Like, She's like, well, it's kind of like I'm watching this movie and I'm just writing it down. And I've always said that. And I was just like, oh my gosh, 
what if it's in our genes? What if it's in our DNA? You know, and so the funny thing is that we finished between the lines and she was like, I am never doing this again. And I was like, "Mm -hmm." because I knew we left it hanging and I knew there was a sequel. And she went off to college. And that fall, it was like probably October, she called me up and she was like, I've been thinking about the sequel. I went, really, have you? And we wrote the sequel called Off the Page um, when we did it from 10 to 12, uh, like three or four days a week by phone, on speakerphone. Because she was in college. College. So whilst in college, she wrote her second book. Mm -hmm. Um, Is she... Is she finished? She was at Vassar, correct? Yeah. Is yeah. she, has she graduated? Is she oh, old yeah, yeah, now? Yeah. She's okay. an old lady now. Um, she's she's married old... now. <laughs> so she... the funny thing is she lives in Texas with her husband, who is um, a resident at a hospital there. And uh, when she moved to Texas this year, she said, I'm going to try writing. And I was like, hmm, are you? Great. Oh, you know, because God forbid I push. But um, honestly, <laughs> it was great because she is, an incredible storyteller with so many stories in her and such a unique voice. And now she has the maturity and the know-how to craft those stories. So she is mm-hmm. actually putting the finishing touches on her first solo YA novel, which, you know, will go out and hopefully be published soon. Unbelievable. I know. It's something I'm super proud of. <laughs> Unbelievable. It's just incredible. Um, yeah, Daryl cast me in my very first professional acting job. At Amazing. the time, Jordan, her son, who is now the king of Broadway um, as well, would, you know, hang out in the dressing room and, and just watch the world. And and yeah. that is, you know, that was his intro to the thing that has become absolutely yeah. front and center in his life. And, and working with his mom, the way you're working with your kid is just... Um, it's yeah. such an incredible thing. I think it's really important too to hammer home the fact that there are there are so many powerful strong women attached to this project. You know, so we've got Kate Anderson and Elisa Samsell who are geniuses and I don't even have to say anything because when you hear their music you will never get it out of your head again. I'm sorry in advance. You know, it's amazing. <laughs> And, um, you know, you've got Sammy and me as the source writers. You've got Daryl, who really paved the way for female producers in, you know, on yeah. Broadway. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and you've got all of this behind the scenes of a story that is at heart about a young woman and her relationship with her mom, which, again, let's let's try to count the number of Broadway shows that allow us to see that, you know, once you get past Gypsy, which I would not call a functional mother-daughter relationship and Mamma Mia, which is more tongue in cheek, what's left? Not a lot. And that has always amazed me because we know that the vast majority of ticket buyers for Broadway are women. So why don't women get to see their stories reflected on stage? Why do we have Evan Hansen and Be More Chill and all these young men, but no women? You know, and so to be able to bring that story to a theater, to be shown to hopefully lots of moms and lots of daughters, and you know that the, I hope we'll see people coming in droves as mothers and daughters to the show, but to then have them be able to see on a stage something that really reflects their life and their choices and their fears and their hopes and their relationships, 
I am so crazy proud of that. I just have to say one of the books you wrote, you know, it's incredible to me uh, just how, as you have gone through your life, so many of my experiences have matched yours and the idea that you wrote a book about your daughter going off to college and it became about elephants and sort of relationships <laughs> between mother elephants and daughter elephants. My daughter is a freshman and so who literally just went back to school this morning. Her dad is oh. driving her back to Amherst right now. And it's like the ways in which you've been able to take a theme mm-hmm. of your own and then put it in a world where it barely resembles the idea of a mother longing for her daughter, you know, to not go to college and leave her. And it becomes about this whole other thing. I just think you have a truly magical artistic brain that is able to take the things that are so pedestrian in certain ways um, and make them into these adventures that are so universal and so brilliantly woven into the fabric of what it is to be human and what it is to be curious and and what it is to also really struggle. And all of your books contain all of those elements in a way that whether you live you know, in a small town somewhere or a village somewhere in a, in a country far away from your own experience, that your lived experience, that this Long Island girl um, <laughs> has, has ended up writing about cultures and, and life, lives and lifestyles that are just so foreign from your own experience. I mean, your, your beautiful imagination is just so inspiring. Um, so before I let you go, and people can go online, and if you look up between the lines, between the lines dot com, maybe between the lines dot com. It's between the lines, between the lines musical dot com. Yes, you can find out everything about how to see it and when to see it, and its and its journey as a show. And of course, you can look up Jody. Pico, it's P-I-C-O-U-L-T. It, you don't hear the, the rest of those letters when you say her name um, and see so much content about not just what she's written, but in conversation about things that she cares about. Um, is there a little known fact about you that you can share? And can you sing All I Want is a Room Somewhere <laughs> as our way out of this episode? Oh my God. Can I decline on that one? <laughs> Just the first slide. Just sing All I Want is a Room Somewhere. That's it. Oh, my gosh. Alana, I should not be doing this. Um, Let's see. All I want is a room somewhere. There you go. (laughs) That is with not a single sip of scotch. That was beautiful. That's your morning voice. Um, Um, Is there a little known? We'll never do that again. Is there a little known fact about you? Yeah, um, you know, I do live in New Hampshire, apparently in a place where power is on a need to know basis. But um, one thing that's really fun is that we have uh, two donkeys and um, their names are Quigley and Delilah. And Delilah, who is our main character in Between the Lines, was named after Delilah the donkey. How old are these donkeys? (laughs) Too old. Uh, They are... (laughs) They're 13 years old now. Uh, apparently, donkeys live to like 35 or 40. So, you know, they have to be in the will. And, um, but yeah, that's they're, they are like our lawn ornaments, basically. Wow. I love that. I love that. Jody. thank you for being on the podcast. What a treat to get to talk to you today. It was an honor. Thank you so much. Okay.
One more thing. So many of you have asked, how do you donate to the podcast? Well, it could not be easier. Just go to littleknownfactspodcast.com slash donations. Instructions are clearly laid out, and I'm so grateful to you in advance for any donation you choose to make. But regardless, I have loved, loved, loved making the previous 200 and something episodes for you. I can't wait to make 200 more. I wish you a beautiful day. Stay healthy. Be safe. Until next time. Clouds can make the wind blow. Bugs can make the grass grow. So, there you go. These are little known facts that now you know. The talent coordinator for this episode is John Zaytune. The episode was edited by Nicholas Klar. We record in New York City. The Little Known Facts theme song was written and recorded and sung by Georgia Famusa with backup vocals by Caleb Famusa. Thank you. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during Movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com.